it just strikes me that the numbers of attendees, the numbers of dollars is a kind of a, <laughs> this is my perspective, a kind of a boring measure. And the real measure, and I don't know how you put it into statistics, but you can feel what is happening in a congregation. You can feel it. And people will articulate it, and they will share it, and they will talk about it, but I don't know how you quantify it. But I've felt it many times, and it's, and it's rich. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I am Matt Burke, the Education Director and the Northeast Director for the Center for Congregations. And with me is the immutable Ben Tapper. Hey, Ben. I cannot be muted. Actually, I don't even know what immutable means. I'm not even going to front. <laughs> it sounds amazing, though. Unchangeable. Ah, that's definitely not true. <laughs> but hey, Matt, it's good to be here with you today. Yeah, it's good to be here with you. And mutability is an interesting word to use today because this is a mutable episode. We're doing a little bit of a different episode today. We're going to get out of the way pretty quick on this one because I sat down with some prior staff from the Center for Congregations, Nancy DeMott, who was our resource director for quite a number of years, and Doug Hanner, who was our Southeast director for a number of years as well. Both have since moved on to other things. But we talked with them about their experiences with congregations in their work in Indiana. And one of the things, you know, I liked about this episode, especially having not sat in on the interview itself, is that I think it's going to give our listeners a view of some of the ideology and the kind of perspective that grounds the work of the center and really showcases our appreciation for congregations. And so it'll be a slightly different vibe than maybe we normally have on our episodes, but I think it's really important. Yeah, and the point of this episode was not necessarily to showcase the Center for Congregations because that's not what we're about. We're about showcasing the work of congregations. And so that was the thrust of the conversation is we really just wanted to hear from Doug and Nancy about some of the great stories that they had encountered over the years because your work is important and we believe in you. And so we're just trying to reinforce the understanding that we're here to serve congregations because we really believe that you are doing the hard work in your communities and we just want to be here to support and serve you in that. And that definitely came through in both Doug and Nancy's perspectives and thoughts. And you could still hear the joy in their voices as they recalled some of their experiences and the moments they had working with congregations while they were here. And so, so that was just beautiful. Yeah. So we hope you enjoy this interview with Doug Hanner and Nancy DeMott.
right, everybody, welcome back. And uh, we're here with Doug Hanner, who's the former Southeast Director for the Center for Congregations. Hey, Doug. Hey, Matt. Good to have you here. Good to be here. And also we have Nancy DeMott, who's the former Resource Director for the Center for Congregations, who was based out of our Indianapolis office. Hey, Nancy. Hi, Matt. So glad to have you both here. It's great to be a part of it. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Yeah, and I wanted to just do an episode where we talked to some former folks from the center to just discuss, you know, as you both know, we really believe deeply in the work of congregations. We believe that they're good places that do good things. And I just thought it'd be a lot of fun to get some perspective of two folks who did the work for a number of years. And Doug, you're still a pastor out in Wyoming, right? Right. Yeah. So you're still in the work of congregations. So just from your perspective, just kind of a high level view, tell me a little bit about through your work, what you saw about congregations in terms of the bright spots, the good things that you kind of saw happening in congregations through your work with them in your time at the center. Okay. Yeah. So I saw some bright spots would be like learning when they would learn things on their own or when we would come alongside them and and learn with them and see them have these aha moments and think in new and fresh ways. That was always fun, I thought. One of the brightest spots for me was to be a part of an organization that lavished generosity in many different ways and forms on congregations. And, you know, from my perspective as a Christian pastor, the bride of Christ, which most often operates on a shoestring. And, uh, and to see the impact of that generosity of investment of time, come alongside congregations and shepherding them, it's a lot like pastoring, but they get to experience the benefits of it and the rewards of it and the learning of it. And uh, I'd call that some bright spots. Yeah. Thanks for that. What about for you, Nancy? I think one of the strongest bright spots for me was to watch congregations learn. And also to be a part of an organization, Center for Congregation, that valued learning, both as an organization and as a part of our mission to enhance the learning for congregations. And when that was done in relation to clergy and members learning together and then taking some action outside of that learning, that was just an amazing thing. And very energizing to be a part of, as as well as the center itself. I recall early when the center first was founded, we brought in a speaker who had just written a book, The Learning Congregations, and it was an opportunity for the organization to get on board and started on a basis of learning itself. And then, of course, the value of learning congregations. It was just amazing to see. Yeah, and both of you mentioned that that theme of learning, and I'm curious to probe a little bit deeper in that. What are some of the cool things that you saw, maybe specific stories or instances where a congregation really changed or shifted gears or maybe created some kind of new innovation? I don't know if you remember any kind of specific stories or events where you saw that kind of thing happen. I have a powerful time of learning, I think, that I experienced Actually, it wasn't too long, maybe four or five years into the history of the center. And one time we had a workshop, which the topic of it escapes me at the moment. But a young man came up to me afterwards and admitted that the topic of the workshop was not what he had hoped. And so I said to him, tell me more. And the story was that their congregation was embroiled in conflict to the point that they really mistreated each other. They talked behind each other's backs. They were 
I can't remember if this was his word or not, they were nasty to each other. And so he was asking me what kind of resources I would recommend. And before that, he actually told me that he was on the board of the congregation. It was a United Methodist Church. And he said, it got so bad that he and three other who were on the board decided that they would meet regularly to pray together to figure out what could be done in these circumstances. So I recommended to him that he read and discuss Gil Rendell's book, Behavioral Covenants. And then they picked three or four other books to read. But the upshot of it was, is that these four people decided themselves to write a covenant of behavior, respecting one another, etc. And then they took it to the board. And the board, I think quite surprisingly, dialogued with them about it. They tweaked it and they involved the pastor in it. And the upshot of it was that they had a congregational worship service centered around the covenant with Noah. And all the leaders got up to the front of the sanctuary and they repeated the covenant. And they had their service videotaped. And then their idea was that every time a person came as a new member, they would get a copy of this videotape that indicated the kind of covenant they had made with each other for civility and respect and that kind of thing. It was a powerful story. And the only role the center had really was I recommended one book Hmm. and the rest took off. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a cool thing that from our side of the table, sometimes as consultants, we're just providing a modest offering, right? That we're recommending a book, maybe even just a chapter of a book, a video, but it's so beautiful to see when congregational leaders get a hold of that and get a hold of an idea or a vision and then carry that through to an ending like you discussed. I've seen, I think, two other congregations that I've encountered that have a covenant like that actually in their lobby. And that to me is such a cool thing, such a comforting thing that you step into the space and you realize how seriously that congregation takes civility and the ability to disagree, but to get along together. And it's just neat that we were, through you recommending Gil Rendell's book, we're able to be a part of the journey of that specific congregation. That's really cool. What about you, Doug? Any specific stories you can think of where you saw some innovation or changes happening? Yeah, so maybe a couple, and they relate to the same congregation, if I remember right, because I can't look things up in the database anymore, (laughs) but I'm trying to refresh my memory. So maybe a shorter one and a longer one. So this one congregation, I think this had nothing to do with the recommendation from the center. It's something we learned about this congregation before they engaged with the center. So they'll start there. So they were in a spirit of being ready to make some changes. And that congregation in my region was the hilly country of Indiana, (laughs) which lend itself to more hunting and sportsmanship, that kind of thing. And white-tailed deer hunting is a big deal where we come from. When season comes in, I mean, volunteer fire departments have fish fries. You know, they make a killing on fish sandwiches that weekend. And the first day of season is typically on a Saturday. Second day is a Sunday. And so many congregations have this missing segment of the dads and moms and and whoever are doing the hunting. And rather than bemoaning and shaming these members or worshipers to, you know, you should be in church on Sunday instead of up in a tree somewhere shooting Bambi. <laughs> this church had a 4 a.m. worship service 
and called it camo friendly or something like that and serve breakfast, come worship before you go hunt. Mm. And families came together in their camo and their fluorescent orange and had their time of worship and did their hunt. And then something happened where people started coming back after worship and having their hunt and showing off their trophies when the next regular scheduled service was on. But that same congregation had attended, we had in the first round of flourishing congregations, which was a, you know, one of the major grant initiatives and workshops that the center put on early on. This congregation was invited to it and they attended and there was two or three from the church and they thought, wow, this is something. And they not only learned from there, But with that resource, they took it to a level that I'm not sure we expected. They took the whole church, membership included, on a retreat and booked the whole lodge at a remote place and had a weekend of working through flourishing congregations and the different segments of that to do their planning for where are we going as a congregation Mm -hmm. and how's God leading us and how can we tie into that, which is risky business when it's not just the leadership of the church, but it's the whole church involved and they get a voice in it. And boy, did they have buy-in. That was a beautiful thing to watch. That's really cool and illustrates one of the things that we value and we talk about explicitly in the center, but maybe not explicitly to congregations is the more people you have involved in a change process, usually the better that change process has an opportunity to flourish and to thrive. And it's one of the things that I've noticed growing up in the church and going to conferences and things like that, that sometimes you'll send a pastor to a conference or a single leader and they get very excited about something new, but then they come back and there's very little traction that can happen. So it's just so good to have all people together. And for that congregation to invite everyone to a planning process like that is, like you said, it's audacious, (laughs) But but it worked out. I think that's one of the cool things about the center that helps to serve congregations. And that is early on when we started having workshops and we did some follow-up, we learned very early on that the traction for implementing the ideas and making them into a reality was if their congregation had multiple people at the workshop. And what was exciting to me about that is that concept was then embedded in our major grants initiatives and our flourishing congregations. We began to require multiple people from a participating congregation to the experience so that they didn't have to do translation back. I mean, they did some translation, but they had a group of people which had the common experience. Mm -hmm. And really in flourishing and in some of the major grants initiatives, we went as high as saying, you need to have five people from your congregation to have this common experience. And what we found out of that is in the midst of the learning experiences, the participants from the congregation got energized in that experience. And I I recall the story of a congregation that came a distance on a bus and their team had this energy from a major grants initiative and they had a planning session on the two hour bus trip home. And it just gave them some energy, some insights with which to then seed the congregation that they went back to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. And so if anybody's listening who has ever wondered why we sometimes require teams, there's a good reason for that, that we really believe that bringing a team is vital to getting change to occur. 
in your congregation, especially around new concepts or new ideas, because we're very well aware that congregational life is difficult. One author that I've listened to talks about it being in the middle of the whirlwind all the time. (laughs) It's very hard to address future things and change management when you're just dealing with the day-to-day whirlwind of what's happening. And so the more people you can get involved, the better that is. Thank you for sharing that story, Nancy. And I'm curious, Nancy and Doug, what other markers have you seen in positive change circumstances or situations in congregations? What other things have you seen that are elements that lead to successful change or successful forward momentum other than what we've talked about so far? Certainly, at least one of those elements is when the clergy and the laity work together. And that's a dynamic that's new for some congregations because, I mean, some just by their governance and their polity are heavily clergy and some are heavily lay. And there's some that's in between, but when they can team up together, I've seen some beautiful things out of that. Hmm. And the trust level goes up, of course, that we're on the same team and working toward the same mission. Hmm. I think. One of the most powerful things to me, and this is, you have to understand that my perspective is throughout my tenure at the center, I was involved in three major grants initiatives, helping to assess the need and then to figure out what congregations needed relative to that. And your listeners may be interested in the framework that informs our major grants initiative. It's highly focused on education. And so congregations are expected to bring a group. And then there are three to four all-day learning sessions that these groups are expected to attend, along with some homework that they do. And then they're offered a grant of $30,000 matching money. And the transformation that takes place in the congregations as they work the process is really remarkable. And in fact, it's been said more than once that the process that the Center for Congregations offers them is equal to or more valuable than the dollars. And so, you know, I've been involved in a major grants initiative on building issues, one on strategic planning, and then the most recent one on community ministry. And the stories are kind of profound about what people have done. And it was just a joy to me to walk alongside and hear their stories. I know everybody can't be involved in a major grants initiative, but congregations who are interested in the major grants topics that come forward, you know, I would urge them to attend because the process is rich. And the connections between congregations and the encouragement and It's kind of like a little support system. We're all working on this together. Mm -hmm. And as they gather together on those educational days, the cross-fertilization is just amazing to watch. If I could piggyback what she's bringing up there, further evidence of the process is more valuable than even the matching grant money. I remember watching some congregations just try to nickel and dime everything we can itemize here to get that grant money. we got to get the grant money. And in parallel to that is their work in the process. And when the whole project's done, they wind up even returning some money because it didn't fit what their process brought them to. And it wasn't valuable enough for them. They just had to return the remainder. And that's, I think that's a neat thing to watch. Yeah. And we've even had some congregations that will step out of a major grant initiative like that at the grant phase and just say, you know what, we've learned so much 
And honestly, there's not a whole lot that we need to implement what we need to do. We just need to get on the same page and just make some modest things happen. And that's been interesting to watch as well, that often we think about congregational spaces as places where the primary need is monetary. But in all honesty, sometimes the primary need is not. It's just a matter of direction and education and information, which is, again, one of the reasons why the center exists is not only do we do granting, but our resource consulting, where we try to help recommend certain kinds of resources or the education events that we do. This podcast is an element of that as well, right? That we just think that the right kind of information at the right time can often be more powerful than additional money in your budget. So that's a great point you raised, Doug. I actually think that's marvelous. I'm not sure that if I hadn't seen it, (laughs) I would believe it. You know, I was sort of under the impression, like many people are, that the most needed resource is financial. But you make a good point, Matt, and it's just so gratifying to watch and to experience with these folks their excitement, their, I think on many occasions, their newfound spirituality Hmm. as they work the process. Hmm. Yeah. So thanks for going there. Having left the center and been re-immersed into the pastoral culture, I was going to say what you said, Matt, is downright biblical, (laughs) (laughs) that it's not about the money. And to help that newfound spiritual direction that Nancy named, I know we have some employees at the center that have gone from pastoring to consulting, but it's you that's gone back into the pastoring. And it's neat to put some of those principles into play as a shepherd, and it's right on point. And I don't know if that's too biblical to to put in a podcast, but I want to throw that in there. Not at all. I think it's great. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Doug. Yeah, and it's one of the things that I think people would be surprised to see the success we see in bivocational, trivocational situations where the pastor doesn't even get paid by the congregation, but they're shepherding this body of people that are on a shoestring budget, but it's a live and vibrant community because they're there. And, and like you said, Nancy, the spirituality of it is so alive and they're just united in purpose and what they're doing and what they're focused on. And it's so not about the funding at that point. So there's just a lot of beauty that can happen. And I think that goes to a recent thought that I've encountered is that the metrics that you focus on really will drive a lot of what you do. And so a lot of congregations, the metrics that are focused on are the dollars in income and the number of people who are attending. And those are fine as far as they go. But when that's kind of your sole focus and your sole metric, it leads to certain conclusions or outcomes. And there are other ways to think about how you view your congregation's value and other metrics that you can look at. I've seen some congregations that will collect the number of conversations that their congregants have had with other people in the community or ways that they've served in the community that aren't necessarily connected specifically with the work of the church, but the people of the congregation are involved in other ways. And that's part of the work of that church, right? Because it's part of the body of that church. It's part of the people who are there. And so thinking about what is the community impact beyond just how much money comes in and how many people are attending each week, but what's flowing out of that congregation into the community around them, I think is a much more interesting metric to think about. I remember a few cases shifting that direction uh, with pastors and lay folks asking, how do we measure spiritual growth Hmm. in our current how do we measure spiritual maturity maturing over a time period trying to help shift that focus some and reaching for resources around that Mm -hmm. it just strikes me 
that the numbers of attendees, the numbers of dollars is a kind of a, <laughs> this is my perspective, a kind of a boring measure. <laughs> and the real measure, and I don't know how you put it into statistics, but you can feel what is happening in a congregation. You can feel it. And people will articulate it and they will share it and they will talk about it. But I don't know how you quantify it. But I've felt it many times and it's and it's rich. Hmm. Yeah, they, we need a feel meter. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody can develop that, that would be a, a wonderful invention. When <laughs> you bet. Yeah, so I can hear the excitement in each of you, and I share that same excitement because of the work that we do, we get to see the positive things, we get to see the bright spots. And I'm curious about what are some of the maybe counter narratives or counterfactuals you've seen to the stories of congregational decline? Because usually in the media, it's all about, you know, young people aren't coming or, you know, these churches are all closing their doors. And those things are happening. They do happen. But being a part of the same work that I am currently a part of, know that that's not the total story. What are some other things that you see in congregations or have seen in congregations that might be hopeful to some of the people who might be getting a bit bombarded by the negative information that's coming out in the media? I have two or three that come to mind, and maybe two of them are from when I was working with the center. One was a, a congregation that has seen year over year growth in attendance and in the things that they track, but at least in attendance as one indicator year over year since 1991. Now, I don't know what it's been like since I've been away from the center, but it was like that church averaged 91. It was a country church, averaged 91 in 1991. And then they might've grown only by a fraction of a percent, but they always grew. And it's not that they were trying to grow. It's just there was that dynamic that I wish I had that feel meter for that Nancy talked about to be able to go back and track that. But by the time I got to be a consultant for them, they had already grown well over 300 in their Sunday morning attendance. It's that same church that has that Hunter Church. And to see them having to constantly reorganize their facilities because, you know, they're, they don't have unlimited space, but they're in a good location. But to know that there was growth year after year in a time and culture where we often hear of the decline of the church. Hmm. Another example would be New Start churches. There were even some authors that had done some studies where there was a shift in more churches had been started Within the last five years, I think it was, more churches have been started than have been closed. And that is a tip. That's a new thing. And I got to be a part of one of those. I got to help start a new church while I was working at the center. And that was a cool deal with the, the Cowboy Church. And it's still alive. And that's even better. You know, that's super cool. And maybe a third thing is generosity. And this is a more recent story. It's actually the church I'm pastoring here in Wyoming that when the pandemic hit, the church is solvent and no debt or anything like that. Wonderful facilities, a typical country church, but the giving never declined. While attendance took a dip in person, our giving discontinued. And the church, therefore, was, had a new surge of, of well, we should have had that feel meter again, a spirit of generosity in helping others, giving to others, knowing who had a need. 
and where the church uh, many times is seen by folks with, we've got our hand out, we're trying to co- take a collection. Uh, this church became more of a giver to the community in, in a time where some churches are having to tighten the belt or even close their doors or not pay their pastors or struggle with their utilities. Mm-hmm. That's counterculture, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool, Doug. And we've heard the similar stories as well. So places where you would think that with the way the economy is moving and things that have happened in society and culture, that congregations would be experiencing a really big deficit and really big lack. But it's been a relatively common story to hear that people are actually giving more and more interested in what the congregation can do for the community around it. And that's been an interesting shift and an interesting positive that seems to have come out of kind of the pandemic-related issues and challenges that we've been facing. I think that congregations have some vitality, even though they may be decreasing when they have a common purpose outside of their walls or outside of their congregation. The congregation that I used to be a part of in Lafayette, the pastor has challenged them to change their metrics. It's not about how many are in worship. It's not about the money that comes in but it's about the work that God is calling us to do and how faithful we are in moving toward that. And that has really been refreshing. I recall a congregation that was in one of our major grants initiatives, not to (laughs) hound that a lot, but it was a congregation of 30. And they were in a small town. And I think some of us wondered why we had included them in the program because could they achieve what this particular grant was on sacred space buildings. So they went through the process and their building was such that there were a lot of steps up to the sanctuary. Then if they wanted to have their congregants go downstairs to the fellowship area, they had to go down steps. They had a side door that went down steps to their lower level. So they envisioned using their grant money to build an elevator that would help the congregants because they were having diminished attendance because their people just couldn't get up the stairs. And they had the focus on this particular initiative, the elevator, would help them reach out to the community and give their space for organizations that were seeking space. So that was the trajectory they were on. And in the middle of the project, well, in the middle of the planning of the project, there was a very rare flood that got their basement. And it flooded halfway up between floor and ceiling. All of their furniture in there was damaged. Their basement was unusable. And what could have been a stopper did not become a stopper. They stopped their project while they worked with insurance and they got all of their furniture replaced and the building back in their basement back in major order. And then they picked up their process again of installing an elevator. And then several months later, the pastor contacted me and said, our construction worker has kind of walked off the scene and we haven't heard from him. And then in an attempt to pursue what was going on, I don't recall exactly what it was. It was somebody sick in the family, but the contractor really became irresponsible. And somehow they worked through that. And I don't really recall whether they had to change contractors or whether they had some way of negotiating and furthering stronger communication. 
but they got that worked out. And this congregation of 30 got their elevator installed. They got people who hadn't been there in a long time to come back to worship, and they opened their basement for uh, groups in the community. And it was just one of those positive experiences, which you totally unexpected from an outside observer, totally expected that that congregation would have the gifts, the stick to itiveness, the faith to do what they actually did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the resiliency that we see in so many projects is just astounding. I remember a similar congregation that was invited into a grant initiative and a small congregation in a rural area, average age was maybe 65. And the entire thrust of the grant initiative was around young adults. And so there were some questions about, well, you know, it's, why do we want to invite them into this project? They don't, you know, from the outside, it seemed to be a narrative of there's no way that things are going to change, no way things are going to get better. And they were one of the shining stars of that project because they brought in people from the community that weren't even a part of their congregation. They created an emerging leaders group and essentially led to some really great interaction among young adults in the city that they were in, the county seat that they were in. And as far as I understand it, it's still ongoing of just relationships that have been built, an interest in revitalizing the community and helping young adults want to stay in the area to be able to contribute to the area. And all of that from a congregation that, you know, from the outside initially were some real question marks, but their resiliency and the focus that was mentioned earlier, they were able to push through and really do some amazing things. And and the pastor is part-time pastor. He's not even a full-time minister there. He is bivocational. And so, again, it's amazing to see in places where we envision potential scarcity, where there really is a rich abundance of gifts, talents, skills, abilities energy, direction, and resiliency, and really amazing things happen as a result. Yes, I have another story that is related to that when you're kind of focused um, beyond your congregation, and this was not a major grants initiative, but a congregation near Camp Atterbury, small congregation, I don't believe that their sanctuary would hold more than 100. But in their community, the kids didn't have anywhere to go. And so they started a Wednesday program that included a meal and invited the junior high and senior high students of the community to come and gather. And they gathered for Bible study and some social activities and a meal. And when they contacted me, they had 300 people, 300 teenagers on Wednesday nights. And this is in a sanctuary that seats only about 100. So they were bursting at the seams, didn't know what to do, and they were embarking on figuring out what they were going to do. So it turned out that they had a parsonage that they decided to rehab and fix it for a community center for the youth of the community. And I was just nonplussed when they told me that they had 300 kids. They had a very charismatic pastor who he himself was a draw, but the programming and the gift that they were giving to the community was just cool. And they figured out a way. They did get a grant from the center to do an architectural design and that kind of thing. So we were able to help them on that journey, but they were the ones that had the seed growing in themselves and the commitment to serve the kids of the community. 
Mm-hmm. This reminds me of a of another case down in New Albany area, and I don't remember exactly which church. It was, it's one of two that I remember had. While many churches are aging out, or their average age is going up, this was a new start church, and it was all young hipsters. You know, it just it was. And the pastor told me one of their main problems was they didn't have any old people. <laughs> they wanted to recruit old people to come to their church to kind of be parents and grandparents and surrogate mentors to these young Christians in this church. And I'm not sure. No, I don't think I ever heard that but once. But that's counter narrative. Mm-hmm. Our church is too young. <laughs> we, we need some old folks. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, and it's so interesting that a core of some of these stories is identifying what the shared vision is. And I think sometimes that gets hampered by the fact that the understanding of what the congregation is is rooted too much in tradition of, well, we just we've always been here and so we just kind of gather and do our thing. Or the goal is too broad that it could be, you know, you think about we're a church of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, which is fine and it's biblically appropriate. But what does that mean for your congregation? What's the specificity around that idea that unites your congregation in its purpose? And I think some of the stories that we've been talking about reflect that idea that when a congregation can gain a specific focus that's within those larger pieces, that's when some really great things can happen and some really good results come out. Yeah. So as we come close to wrapping up our time here, Nancy and Doug, I'd just be curious for our listeners to hear from you. What encouragement would you give to congregational leaders, to pastors who might be listening to this podcast? And I think they can use a lot of encouragement. So many things have been so difficult the last two years in our society, and we've heard a lot of pastors especially just really having a tough time with a lot of the polarization happening and a lot of the things that they've been having to grapple with, with technology and, you know, some people not meeting in person. What are some words of encouragement you might give to congregations at this point? The first thing that came to my mind for clergy and lay alike is that congregation lay leaders need to affirm their clergy and allow them space to get away. Mm. The pandemic, the change of worship to technology, it is taking a drain on our clergy people. and. Well, everybody is drained. And so it's easy to overlook the clergy people as saying, well, they're the same as everybody else. But they're trying to lead a spiritual congregation through very, very difficult times. Really, it's like the medical profession on the front lines. And so that kind of an experience for clergy, maybe an experience with their leaders, I think that would be one thing that I would say to congregations at this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that, Nancy. So two things come to mind for me, Matt, and one is just keep it simple. I think one thing I've seen in the congregations around me, even here in this setting, has been that with our cultural trends and with the pandemic, that it has helped us strip away what I call the spiritual pork bellies to uh, to church mm-hmm. and to how we roll. And keeping it simple has been refreshing. It's left people with more energy to pour into the things that really do matter and not so much some of the extracurricular programs that can drain people that we do just because we've always done them. Mm-hmm. So keeping it simple. And then especially in this, you named the polarization. 
I feel that one of the most helpful things for me has been to zero in on truth, God's truth, and freedom that comes with knowing that the truth will set us free. And I think folks on both sides, wherever they are in the polarization on that continuum, I think most of them can agree that the truth will set us free. And knowing for me, the freedom that comes for me, it's not my job to defend the truth. Hmm. If folks are getting polarized, all I need to do is shine a light in the right direction, shine a light on the truth. It's our job to proclaim the truth in the church and let God sort it out. And he will. He doesn't need me to defend him. (laughs) He just needs me to do my job and shine a light on the truth, Mm -hmm. point in the right direction. Thanks for that, Doug. That's really powerful. I have maybe a burden or whatever for congregations to play a role in helping their people be civil in the midst of the divides. And I'm remembering that Richard Mao, back in the 70s, he was the president of Fuller Seminary, and he wrote a book, the title of which escapes me, but the point of it was the role of the congregation in civility. And I think that there is a role for the church to help the people that are participants to think about the teaching and example of Jesus in terms of how you treat people, whether you disagree with them or don't agree with them. That's not the point. How you relate to and connect with other people with whom God is in. I don't know. I think it's an important role that we don't talk about. So I don't know if that's a word of encouragement or. Well, no, I think going back to exactly that of keeping it simple and focusing on truth. And, you know, from the Christian faith background that I'm from, one of the core truths that we hold is that everyone is created in God's image. And so just that basic truth of the person that you disagree with most vehemently, that you view as your biggest rival or enemy, is still created in the image of God and deserves the dignity and the love that Christ would show them. That's a very basic truth, but that truth, if lived out appropriately, would drastically change how we engage in society and in the world around us. And so just as one example of you know the kind of truths that we claim to hold— and we say that we hold them, but how are we doing showing that out in the world? <laughs> I think that's that's a really good point. Yeah, well put. Well, Nancy and Doug, thank you so much for sharing your years of experience, both within and without the center, and really appreciate your time here. And I think these stories are engaging. To listeners, these are indicative of our work, and hopefully you can see some of your congregation and some of these stories that we've told and see some hope and brightness in your future as well. So. Nancy and Doug, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Matt. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Matt. Good to see you, Nancy. You too, Doug. And Matt.
Matt, this is one of the rare times where you've done an interview solo and I've gotten to listen afterward. And it was kind of a treat to get to just kind of experience it as our audience experiences the interview and to reflect on it. But before I dive into my reactions and reflections, I want to hear what you're still sitting with and holding after that interview. Yeah, I just hope folks take away the heart of the center because I think it was really in evidence with the conversation with Nancy and Doug that we're here because we believe in you. And I mentioned this on the front end of the episode, but it's really true. I mean, we don't have an agenda as the Center for Congregations. We genuinely just want to help people who are on the front lines of ministry. And I think that was really evident in the conversation. Yeah, agreed. And you're right. The center's heart, and particularly the hearts of Nancy and Doug, did, did show. And I never had the pleasure of working with Nancy DeMott. I've heard nothing but wonderful things about her. There was a brief overlap between my time at the center and Doug's. And for those that don't know Doug Hanner, in my mind, the man is the personification of cowboy pastor. Isn't that what he refers to himself as sometimes, too? Oh, yeah. He ran a cowboy church down in Brown County when he was a Southeast director. He was legitimately a cowboy. Like he would go and work with his herd, his beef livestock herd Mm -hmm. in the morning Mm -hmm. and then go to the office and then go home in the evening and probably do more things with the cows and then ran a cowboy church on the way. Like one of my fondest memories of Doug was we would go for like a holiday lunch and we'd be walking through downtown Indy and he's legit in his like 10 gallon hat and duster. And handlebar mustache walking the streets of Indianapolis. Like, he was a true cowboy. Like, Mm -hmm. a legit, genuine cowboy. And his heart, I think, always shone through. You know, in all the meetings I sat in with him, he just has such a a gentle spirit, and I appreciate that. But there's also a kind of a warmth and an air of fun about him. The last Doug Hanner anecdote, I remember sitting through staff meetings for the first, like, four to six months I was here. And inevitably, if Doug was in a meeting there would be some reference to obscure bull or cow facts that I didn't know that would then become like a running joke for the staff. And Doug, if you're listening, I'm sad to say those references have ceased and stopped. So if you want those to continue, feel free to email us random cow facts or cowboy facts. We'll try to slip those into our meetings more often. But they have stopped since you've left, which is, I think, a loss for the center. Doug is an amazing storyteller, and he's actually a pastor in Wyoming, and I think he's online now. So if you ever want to check it out, look for Doug Hanner. In Wyoming, I think his sermons are online, so you could get a taste of our good friend Doug Hanner. Yes, please check that out, y'all. Please check it out. And for me, again, not knowing either of them the way that you do, it was really cool to hear the joy of both Nancy and Doug as it came through, to hear their perspectives on like center history and the mission and purpose of the center, and to just understand how much they appreciated getting to help congregations do the work that they were going to do. And it it was authentic and it was rich and it was refreshing even for me. You know, though I work here day in and day out, we don't often sit around telling those kind of stories and reflecting on the positive interactions we've had or the, the stories from congregations that really jump out to us and bring us joy. And so to just hear that from some center OGs, if you will, it was really cool. Yeah. Nancy was here almost from the beginning. I can't remember when she was hired on, but I think it's mentioned in the interview. She had a very long tenure. And was just such a wonderful person. Her personality shaped a lot of who we were and what we did. And there was a deep joy in her that was always evident, which I always appreciated. So they were both just wonderful to work with. Uh, Another thing that stood out to me is that they mentioned that the process that the center offers is equal to or maybe even more valuable than the grant dollars that we offer. And that was an interesting perspective. And I don't know if it holds true, you know, for all congregations in every context, 
But to hear them name that they had seen that, and at least in certain contexts of their work, was really interesting. And I'm wondering how that landed with you, where that resonates within your work and experience of working with congregations. Yeah, I mean, I've been here eight years. And of course, because it's our process, we believe in that process. And I think we believe in it for good reasons. We've even had some grant initiatives where congregations came and went through certain education events with us and training and then said, you know what, we really aren't going to apply for the grant in this because we realized we pretty much have what we need. We just needed this information and we needed some direction and guidance. And they received that guidance and were able to move on and do things even without additional financial support. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it was just intriguing for me to hear it. It's a perspective that wasn't completely unfamiliar. I've heard us talk about this when we discuss our process internally, but to hear it brought up again so definitively was fascinating to me. And then there was another piece in the interview where I think Nancy mentioned a newfound spirituality that she encountered as a result of maybe one of our major grant initiatives. I don't know that I'm remembering the exact moment correctly, so you might have to help me, but I think she was speaking to a major grant initiative, maybe it was community ministry, and that she experienced a congregation or congregations engaging with a newfound spirituality as a result of going through the major grant process and doing the work. And that was also cool because, again, it's not something we regularly talk about. So much of our work and internal dialogue is about, okay, is our process working for congregations? Who are we reaching well? Who aren't we reaching well? What do we need to tweak? It's kind of like technical, you know, just kind of refining, reevaluating what we're doing and how we're doing it. And so for Nancy to bring in that spiritual element was funny. And I also appreciate it, Doug, earlier in the interview, he offered maybe some biblical quote or insight and he had to check in with you. He's like, hey, is it, I don't know if it's okay to mention the Bible in this podcast. And I just, that was such a funny Doug moment that really cracked me up. So yeah, those are other things that I'm kind of sitting with after listening to the interview. Yeah. And I think that's a good reminder if you're listening to this episode to remember that it's easy to get lost in the day-to-day of what's happening in your congregation, the logistics, the moving people, motivating people, just making sure that Sunday worship is going well or that, you know, you've got greeters at the door, but spending time to sit back with the leadership of your congregation and tell stories of the positive things you've seen happen over the last year, two years, three years. Those things are very energizing. It was very energizing for me to have the conversation with Nancy and Doug because we get lost in the day to day. And I think we need to reflect on why we do the work that we do and the joy that it brings to us and to others. So if you're a congregational leader, maybe build that into your next board meeting, staff meeting, where you just have a time of storytelling and things that you've really appreciated and enjoyed. Yeah, that's good, Matt. It's always good to kind of have that reminder to come back to the stories, because the stories, I think, are what fuel us and what will continue to ground our work moving forward, because they connect us to people, right? And at the end of the day, I think that's what all of us care about, whether you're at the Center for Congregations or in a community church or, you know, wherever you're at, the work that you're doing, I think. Hopefully it all comes back to people. Mm-hmm. And normally, you know, at this point in time in the interview, we would bring you a list of several resources. But given the different nature and vibe of this interview, we decided to do something a little different on this end as well. So, Matt, do you want to share with our audience the one resource we do want to bring today? Yeah, we've actually got a section on our website about congregational stories. And so we're constantly trying to tell the stories of congregations, not that we're taking credit for it, because it's really not us that does anything. I mean, we listen and we try to get them connected with some good information, but they're the ones who are doing the hard work. And so we just like to highlight those stories of the good things that are happening in congregations in Indiana. So I just encourage you to check out that page, centerforcongregations.org. And we actually have a button for congregational stories, but we'll also include that in the show notes. 
Absolutely. And so with that, we really appreciate you taking the time to just hear from Doug and Nancy and to listen to Matt Nash's reflections on the interview. As always, we want to thank the generosity of the Lily Endowment for making this work, specifically the work of this podcast, but more broadly, the work of the center and the CRG possible. Without them, we couldn't be here to support you and to learn about the great work that congregations are doing. And so we really appreciate the endowment. We also want to thank our editor and recording engineer, Jaden Lee. He keeps us sounding amazing on a consistent basis. So thank you, Jaden, for the work that you do. Yes. And we want to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find this podcast. And please follow us on social media at Center for Congregations on Facebook and Instagram. You can also reach out to us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org if you have any thoughts or questions. Maybe you have an episode that you think might be interesting for people to hear. You've got a guest that you think it might be important to have. Or maybe you have a resource for an episode that we've done that you think will be helpful for other congregations. We would love to hear any and all of that information, any comments, any questions that you have. We would love to hear from you. And last but certainly not least, our geolocation or geographic shout out. We want to send a note of appreciation to our listeners in, I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly, Brookline, Massachusetts. It's literally spelled Brookline, so I'm assuming it's not Brooklyn. I imagine y'all might get annoyed at that confusion. So hopefully I'm pronouncing it correctly, but we thank those that are listening in Brookline, Massachusetts. We appreciate your support. And if you hear this, hit us up in the email podcast at centerforcongregations.org. Especially if he pronounced it wrong, let's make fun of him mercilessly for that fact. Yes, I'm actually here for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, thanks everyone for listening to this episode for the Center for Congregations. I'm Matt Burke. And I'm Ben Tapper. See y'all next time.